This is the World Teacher Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of the World Teacher Podcast. I'm Gareth Manning, and I'm back after a bit of a mental health hiatus. Depression is nothing less than a living nightmare, that's for sure. But it's also a great gift. A gift from your soul to yourself. An invitation by demand to wake up and shake up your life and follow the path you're meant to take. I faced and am facing my pain. I've stopped hiding from myself, and I've found the gift of truth in depression. I'm immensely grateful for it and will be charting my own course soon. I'm leaving Think Global School in June to devote my life to the evolution of Earth by evolving education. If anyone's interested in hearing more about my zany plans, please keep listening to the end of the episode as I'll share a bit more in the outro. For now, it's with great pleasure that I introduce my guest, who happens to be one of my favorite educational thinkers, Dr. Yang Zhao. Dr. Zhao is formally a Foundation Distinguished Professor in the School of Education at the University of Kansas and a Professor in Educational Leadership at the Melbourne Graduate School of Education in Australia. But he's so much more than that. The fact that this guy is a prof at two unis in utterly different cultural and geographic contexts tells you something about the global nature of his thinking and work. I saw Dr. Zhao speak in person like five or six years ago at a conference. He absolutely tore to shreds the illogic and idiocy behind the PISA international standardized tests. Beautiful. Fortune recently gave me a reason to reach out to Dr. Zhao. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you may remember that episode 11 featured the lovely and brilliant Nandini Chatterjee Chatterjee Singh, whose name is difficult for me to pronounce, I apologize Nandini, from UNESCO MGIEP. She spoke forcefully and eloquently about the importance of holistic human development and the neuroscience of social and emotional learning. Well, Nandini and the good people at the Mahatma Gandhi Institute very kindly invited me to be a guest editor of their biannual publication, The Blue Dot. That's not the kind of opportunity I'd pass up, particularly since it entailed no actual editing on my part, but instead finding people who might be interested in writing about the future of education. Dr. Zhao was one of a very small number of people I reached out to. Fortunately, he agreed to write the feature article and ultimately agreed to meet me and come on the podcast. Perfect. Before we get into things, I definitely want to just plug issue number lucky 13 of the Blue Dot. Just search UNESCO Blue Dot. The issue is entitled The Blue Dot 13, Reimagining Education Beyond the Rhetoric. Or you could type out UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development, Blue Dot 13. That works too. There's a lot of great stuff in there. We managed to get the support of a lot of excellent thinkers offering a really interesting range of divergent perspectives. These include two pieces by the former students of mine who I hired to work on the podcast with me, Ina Anomaly. So proud of them. It's also just an absolutely beautifully designed magazine visually. So well done. Please do check it out, UNESCO MGIEP Blue Dot 13. Yang Zhao's feature story in it is entitled Reimagining Education Post-COVID. The logic of his piece follows nicely from his latest book, one of 30 he's authored, called Teaching Students to Become Self-Determined Learners. For me, this is basically the central challenge in education. Mental health, social and emotional learning, self-awareness, embodied understanding, restorative justice, machine learning, equity, systems thinking, design thinking, true, clear, critical thinking, all the things that really matter, matter because they help create the conditions for authentic, holistic human 
growth. In other words, such things matter as educational foci only to the extent that doing so helps kids and adults direct and determine their own lives well. That's the goal. Help all humans fully flourish. Yang Zhao is a thought leader on the crucial topic of self-determined learning, and it's important that people really listen to him. He and I agree on much. For instance, he talks about autonomy, causal agency, and self-determination not only as vital motivational forces necessary for growth, but also as basic human rights, child rights, rights that are systematically trampled on almost everywhere. It's so wrong. We also very much agree that the traditional model of schooling sets up huge populations for failure in life, and that as the world has gotten more complex, it serves kids increasingly less well. Change is urgently needed, and fortunately, it's happening. In our talk, we only had an hour, so we weren't able to get into that part of the argument enough. I also didn't get a chance to talk about some of the honestly very real limitations and pragmatic considerations around self-directed learning environments, but all the more reason for him to come back. Super positive conversation, this one. I really enjoyed it. This is me and Dr. Yang Zhao on the future of education as self-determined learning. So Dr. Zhao, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. I love your work and your thoughts. I just finished reading your book, um, which I believe was called uh, Teaching Students to Become Self-Determined Learners. And it's all about the importance of student self-determination. You argue vociferously against the traditional dominant model of schooling and for an alternative model uh, or paradigm really of education that centers students and empowers them to design their own learning. Why is that important? Well, I, I think, thank you for, for having me. You know, first of all, you know, it's just great to, to chat. I think uh, near a weekend, as this is very nice. I think, uh, I just think this message needs to get out to a lot more people because we've been criticizing <laughs> Traditional models of education, most of them argue, of course, it says the one size fits all, which is, of course, wrong. But I think a bigger issue, which has seldom been talked about, is the idea that students, as human beings, they should own their own education. And they should be self-determined. They have the right to self-determination. It's, it's just a moral right, but also it's a motivational uh, thing. So, so I think that the biggest thing, if you look at our traditional education, I'm not talking about all schools. There are some innovative schools, but generally speaking, we have a large system. You get the policy makers at the top. They made a curriculum for you. They made the assessment for you. They made schools to run certain ways for you. Then you have the bureaucracies who are packaging them. You know, they have the you know, great level expectations. By this time, you should have learned this much and everybody shall learn this much. And then I'm going to assess you. I'm going to do that. And then they take pride. You know, you, you are in Toronto, you know, in Ontario. They're very proud of our kids. The literacy gets better by third grade this bit. And so if you just manipulate the student, you can get that. It's, this is, you know, and then, uh, then you have schools. Schools never operate alone. Schools always operate with other players. People have defined them. So by the time students go into school, the school principals, school teachers have been trained, have been educated, have inherited a pre-made, a pre-manufactured system for students. And students are really like prisoners, if you think about it, they come to school, 
They have no say of their own experience. They can't change the classroom. They can't change their classes. They cannot force teachers to change because of them. They are there just to accept. And then they are given almost no space to exercise their right to self-determination, to say, who are you? You know, imagine the students when they come to school, who are you? They're, therefore, as a result, students after, you know, I mean, probably third or fourth grade, they learn to treat schools as a job. They just have to do it, but they don't have any passion. And this is why, you know, many schools have to do a lot of professional development, buy a lot of books to manipulate kids, to call motivational skills to manipulate them, which you don't have to. Because, you know, students, if they follow their heart, if learning is their responsibility, they should come to beg you to give what they want. So the biggest problem is we have students for 12 years, maybe 13 years, they have been taught not to be responsible for their own learning, but they are responsible for the school's learning and not to own their own learning, but to follow what others have done, which may have been valuable in the past, but today individuals who are responsible for their own learning, who are passionate for their own learning, who are confident in their own learning, are missing, and they are the ones we need to create a better future for us. And remember, we don't get students ready for the future. They are the creators of our future. I think that schools do a great job at turning kids into liars. Mm -hmm. They do a really wonderful job at teaching kids to game systems and to manipulate things in their own interest. And, and I guess that's part of life if we within our current model of life. But I, I think if we want to build a better world, we need to really encourage honesty and truth seeking in education. And it's really important for a kid to seek their own truth, to figure out who they are and what they're good at, what they value, what their passions are, what their talents are, and cultivate those. And then figure out a way to add value to our world through yourself. And if we can create educational situations that conduce to that, we can have a much better world, and I'm certain of it. Well, you are so right. You are probably the best education philosopher I have not met you know, for a long time. Uh, we teach kids to lie. We teach kids to play with the system because the system is built wrong. The system, I mean, it's not wrong. It was right to build for the industrial age. You know, we had to do what we had to do. But today is different. You're, you're absolutely right. I think uh, today's society, look at a globalization, look at technology, is different. Every individual, if they're honest, if they can create value for others, can have a thriving life. But we deprive them of that opportunity. We force kids buy into this view of if you you only have to do your work, get good grades, you know, get good awards, you can go to the university, then you're going to have a better life. That's not true. It's Student not. Need to you have good information about workplace engagement, for example. So like when you look at how people are doing in their jobs and how engaged they are in their work, it's not that great, is it? No, 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 no. It's uh, I think the, the, the challenge is... Uh, how do you help uh, students and parents to understand it? Because right now the problem is this, because the system has been there for over 100, nearly 200 years. Everybody is in the system. So the system teaches you to compete against each other. 
you know, it manufactures a lot of losers. Just keep sending people, you know, they go to high school, go to university, go to graduate school. So, so you have to have an end, the inflation, but without thinking about other systems, other possibilities, because when you're in the system, it's very hard to say, no, I'm not going to do that because you, you have no other choice. You, say, oh, you simply say, I don't want to do it. But then you need other choices. That's why, you know, I, I like, you know, uh, education innovators to not just to modify the existing system, but create new possibilities to create new possibilities. That's what we need to do, I think, very strongly. And I think you're totally right about that. You argue our new system should be focused on promoting self-determination for kids. What does that actually mean? What does it mean to be a self-determined learner? Well, there are really two point of view. I mean, two points. One is that a, a person has the right to self-determination. That means you can choose what to do as long as you are aware and willing to take responsibility for your actions. I mean, we, we talk of people, you know, let's think about bigger group. In, in Canada, for example, you have so many First Nation Aboriginal people. They, they have the rights to self-determination. They could vote to say, we're part of it. We're not part of it. They could. That, that's how countries gain independence. That's what people choose what to do. But the, at the individual level, human beings are all kind of, when they're born, they're driven by the desire to become self-dependent. And then that, so they can determine, it's okay, you know, if I study this, I will do certain things. If I don't study this, there are certain actions and responsibilities I have to bear. That, that's, I think, that's one thing our students have lost, you know, in the sense that they're not taking responsibilities. Remember, that's why, you know, teachers, you're a teacher. You know, I've, I've been a teacher for over 30, almost 40 years now, is that, we keep trying to drive our students, well, be responsible. We try to fool them to say, oh, you will need this in the future. Whenever it's okay, no, it's your job. I'm here to help you. That's one part. Another part is motivational. You know, the, you know, the psychologist always talking about a theory of motivation is from self-determination, which has really three big parts, you know, that is uh, in autonomy. That is you allow students to pursue, to take actions of their own desire. You know, when students have autonomy, even just fake choices, they are more motivated because they think they are making the decisions. They want to do it. The second thing is about a sense of progress. You know, students, do they feel like uh, they are improving? And do they control the factors they can improve? Imagine our traditional schools. Students' improvement, a lot of times, may not be controlled by you you know, by the students, it's controlled by the teachers, controlled by the test, it's controlled by other factors. And third one is building relationships. You know, that's, that's, you know, you have to build relationships. Students thrive on good relationships. So that's when if you combine both of them, we engage students in self-determined learning that is purposeful, that is out of their own choice, that is about a relationship, that is about making progress. And that is also about taking the freedom and taking the responsibilities. So when I say these things, certain similar things to my mom, my mom uh -huh. will be like, okay, that sounds great, but how do you do that in a classroom of 30 kids? So I wonder if you could maybe speak to some examples where this has actually been put in practice and paint uh, the listeners a picture if you can. 
Thank you so much. That, that's that's a common question because people say, well, how do I teach? How do I make 20 or 30 students to do this? Well, the first thing we need to get rid of is a mindset that students need to be taught. If you think about our traditional schools, whether you have 30 students, 25 students, 10 students, there's always one view. The teacher is the sole source of knowledge and learning, and the teacher is always put in a position of instructing the students. So let's get rid of that view. Students are natural born learners. They can learn, they want to learn. Students are diverse learners. They have different strengths and weaknesses and students are intentional learners. So if we open up schooling to say, we have a group of learners, you are the adults to support them, but their students all want to learn on their own. What do you do? You organize in a very different way. You don't teach anymore. Today, students learn on their own. If you give the resources to them, they can find on their own as well. You know, books, YouTube, Google, and, all, and other experts, they can develop their own learning pathways. I don't know. I mean, you, you look old enough to say you've done your self-learning. If you think about how... I certainly look old. I know. So if you think about... Um, how YouTube has improved the cooking of every family. And, and YouTube has taught how many people to cut their own hair. You know, uh, it's, yeah, just think about that, right? It, it's shocking. How did that happen? Everybody can learn on their own if they're interested. Mm-hmm. So if your mom, you know, I've been doing this, you know, you could say, okay, I'm teaching, let's suppose she teaches physics or whatever, science. She said, okay, I have this, Body of knowledge, body of skills, body of characteristics students need to acquire. But can we simply work with students? We got third students. That's hey, I'll share with them syllabus to say, you know, which one of you think you can learn on your own this stuff? Or some of you might already know this stuff. If you know this stuff, what else would you do? What's your strength? How do you build this knowledge up there? And then how many of you really want to learn from me? And you may get only five, you may get three, or you may get students who say, you know, we can organize our own learning. You automatically split that. I think the teacher's role changes from instructing to supporting, to guiding, to facilitating, not necessarily, you know, guide on the side. I don't, I don't believe in those things. But sometimes you may still have to do a little bit of teaching. But there's a lot of resources. I think relying on students can do a lot. Even first graders, Year one students, you can ask them, what did you do? Where did you learn? What book did you read? You know, there's, this is shocking, by the way. This is what, your question is so amazing because I've seen students that have access to a global set of resources, but yet they're guided by the teachers to only listen to the teacher. And they don't have that self-determined right to discover their own learning. I went to high school of computers we never use the computers i used <laughs> well, them one time in a debate arguing that uh school's a waste of money and i was like look at these computers that we never use and and that's often the case so yeah the technology the mere presence of the technology doesn't in and of itself magically produce learning the relationship between and or the mindset as you put it about learning that a, a teacher has in terms of being a facilitator and an activator of agentic movement in kids is, I think, really, really important. But also important is that kids believe they can do it. 
It's really important. I, I, that's very, very important. And kids I think schools believe. kill that belief. It. Like it, it, there's a <laughs> yeah. lot of, it's just very obvious. I mean, there's a lot of evidence in lots of different ways that you look in terms of like reductions in creativity or an idea production uh, in engagements and whatnot. But just looking at how a kid feels, like when you talk to children, like when you talk to high school kids about their experience, they are under a lot of stress. They're really suffering in many cases, and it, it can be very, very difficult for them to navigate systems um, at all. And the systems, again, were designed to select and sort, right? So like in a traditional model, you have some, you definitely something like 25% of the kids are going to do pretty well, yeah. and the rest are set up for failure. And even within a traditional model, those kids can, the kids who are kind of set up by the system to fail can succeed if they believe and have the right relational support, I think. And I think you're right about autonomy and competence as building those. Um, in a more open model, I work in one. I work in a very, very student-centered model. That <laughs> need for belief in one's ability to learn, that sense of self-efficacy is nonetheless crucial. Like you can give kids all sorts of opportunities to learn on their own, but it won't necessarily happen either if they've already been conditioned by their previous schooling experiences to not really believe in themselves. Self-belief is crucial. Well, definitely. I think, you know, um, you're talking about computers not being used. You know, now China and France, many countries are banning the use of mobile phones in the classroom, which is silly. You know, yeah, it's uh, stupid, but they do it. And, and uh, however, you're right. If you, I mean, this countries ban them probably because they think cell phones distract students from learning because they may be flipping their phones. They're not listening to their teacher. It's coming from that mindset the teacher has to teach and has to teach everybody. So, you know, in a traditional system, you're right. You've got maybe 25%, maybe 10% who can be successful. You know, that's what we build. Even everybody goes to college, you have this degree inflation that, you know, even think a hundred percent get a college degree, you get nothing, you know, that is. So I think, you know, the, the belief that you can learn and you should be able to learn it's probably the most important factor, you know, in the self-determined learning. That is, you can exercise, you can exercise that. I mean, in schools, if you go to, really, before third grade, you might have the best learners and they're always learning, they're trying different things and they're open. But really, very third, fourth, fifth grade, they suddenly said, okay, I know how this game is played. And I know what to do. But if you look at a system, you know, right now, how many students truly drop out? Even if they didn't drop out, how many of them are really paying attention to the students? And even for those who have succeeded. But after 30, 40 years, when they're like age, let's say 50, you know, my age, about when I think about what did I remember? What did I learn? They learn, they probably remember a lot of social relationships. They probably remember a lot of those one or two times the teacher talked to them. You know, a few times they made the students feel, God, I'm good at something. Remember, children are quite fragile in that regard. You know, you have a few students who said, well, I don't care about you, you know, but a lot of students can be seriously destroyed. It, you know, a teacher can have tremendous power. I mean, you've been a teacher, you can have a tremendous power on students. 
and to say, no, I don't think you're right. I don't think you can do this. You can seriously help cure their curiosity and creativity. And they will take a long time. I don't know if you've done this, but I've tried many years ago. Ask many people about how they hate schools. You know, there are a lot of schools are not doing students a favor. They are really hurting the students' ability to become themselves, to become confident. And, and honestly, if you look at international data, and I was looking at international data, you know, I know Canada seems to do well on the PISA, and U.S. doesn't do well. But U.S. students used to be very confident, not Asian students. So you look at any international testing, East Asian countries' test scores are very high, but their students are not confident. You know, confidence, even blind confidence, is quite cool. When you're old enough, if you're confident, you say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn this thing. You can actually learn. But if yeah, you lost confidence. That's the one thing I always admire about yeah. Americans is they're just like, they have this natural confidence for no reason. And it's amazing. Like, if I, I, I would love to have that, this ability to kind of walk into any situation and feel like I'm, I'm in charge and I know what to do. And there's problems with that as well. Of course, yeah. Obviously, but I think you're right. There is a, an importance and power to having confidence. And I would love to have a world where everybody believed in themselves and was able to fully flourish as their best creative self. It would just be so much more interesting. But now we have a world where the people who get through school successfully end up kind of being in charge of stuff and then recreate systems in their own interests, which is growing more and more problematic globally on all sorts of fronts, climate change probably the most, obviously. Um, but I think a lot of the people who are so-called successful aren't really that successful. If we look at like a broader holistic measure of human success, happiness being one, wellness, health, the ability to have good relationships, to add value that's actually pro-social rather than anti or social or destructive, all sorts of billionaires are people who I would never tell children to emulate. Presidents, world leaders are people I wouldn't tell children to emulate, you know? And, and so like, if these are the exemplars of success, I think we need to change our rubric for success. Well, that's, I wrote an article several years ago is trying to really discredit the ideas called meritocracy. <laughs> You know, meritocracy was really a term coined by Michael Young of England. He was making fun of it. It's, it's a dystopian. It's a stupid idea. You know, England was running this thing from very early on. You go to grammar school, you go to vocational technical school, you know, we sort students. And we think right now, I'm sure in Canada, I'm sure in in the U.S., many countries were still endorsing that meritocracy to say we select society students based on their merit. Merit is supposed to be independent of your family uh, and supposed to be yourself. Merit basically is how smart you are and how hard you work. But you know, that's not true. That, that's, not, that's not true at all. You know, it's that we select them, we give them the responsibilities, we give them the positions. You know, that's what you said about, you know, right now, just now, you said schools are sorting mechanisms. mechanisms. So you sort these people, into different, uh, uh, you know, jobs. As I, I would joke about this, is that uh, if you sort students based on height, and send, you know, if you admit students based on height and send them to different colleges, height will become very important. So that's why we pretend, you know, you know, God and test scores are important. So then, people got in those positions. Like I said, they reproduce the system, but also at the same time, 
you, you, you kind of heard other people talk about, you know, other ways of measuring success. But the society does not do that. So that's why self-determined learners is important. Individuals have to become the owners of definition. Instead of accepting other definitions, you know, you know, I don't care how much money people make, but you know, you want to be comfortable, okay? So you want to have a thriving future. So that's why I kept talking about the future should have multiple ways of measuring success, and uh, the future should have uh, different approaches to success. I, I'm actually. Uh, you know, we're fortunate, honestly, to be in North America. I think North America seems to have a broader definition of success, although the dominant still, you know, runs this thing. I was reading somewhere, I forget, it says, bankers, once they reach about mid-age, many of them want to get out. They want to go help others. Other people, like, you know, uh, musicians don't, and teachers don't, and so they have different ways of thinking. So you, you're right, you know, what, what does success mean? You know, so it's, so that's one thing I want our students to learn to define, but not only success in life, but success in learning. What does success in learning mean? You know, but we have a system that defines success for students, but I think students should be able to reject that. Totally agree. At our school, uh, kids design their own mastery projects. And, well, lots of different projects, but the mastery project is a long-term uh, uh-huh. passion project where they have to design their own like curriculum outcomes, yep. their own summative tasks, their own plan and everything. They have to do it and then publicly produce it. One of my favorite ones was actually this year, a student of mine uh, near San Francisco created um, a farm to table egg delivery service. She, yeah, she created like a, like an egg, like she fixed up their their hand, their what's it called? The thing that you keep chickens in, whatever that's called. Um, cool. Had to get chickens, had to raise the chickens, had to like figure out what kind of eggs, had to market, had to create online business, had to be, reach out to potential customers and, and figure out what they need. And ultimately was able to deliver this product and learned in high school that she has the ability to found a company. And now she's going to go out mm-hmm. into the world and has so much power and more importantly, self-belief in her power to be able to take action in the world and to do whatever she wants. And hopefully she'll act ethically. I do well, think so that, that's, that's one thing I want to comment. I just wrote a, a book hasn't published. It's called learners without borders. So it's really a new way of defining education. Like this student, you give example to she, she was passionate and she definitely spent the time. She put her energy into it. And now she's an entrepreneur. She can be very successful. She can be ethical. But then in our tradition, we say, well, but she's not graduating from high school. How do we, if, if she wants to graduate, she has to finish all these courses. But these courses are useless to her. So what do you do? So we need to find different pathways to recognize their achievement, but also help them to go farther. I'm sure she's going to learn a lot more. If she wants to run a successful chicken egg business, she has to expand. She has to learn a lot more about science, a lot more about math. You know, so she can go on to become running something huge. You know, so that's where education fails. There's people, you know, they, they get out, you know. So we need to say, okay, how can we help them? How can we do better, you know, to support these young entrepreneurs? I think we can not with so much difficulty change the model. 
of schooling to allow for a lot more self-determined learning opportunities to create mm -hmm. enabling conditions for that to emerge somewhat naturally. I think it's not that difficult to train teachers to do it, to facilitate well uh, and whatnot. But you have an interesting example in your book of a teacher who tried to do this, tried to push for change in his school. And he wanted like a full day to do like an independent project, let the kids kind of design their own learning day and then fought for years and basically failed. But then it ended up starting his own school Great. But in your example, you're able to show that like he was able to get some success, have like a period a day. The argument, though, was that that failed because all the incentives around the kids were still there. And like that tiny little bit of tinkering wasn't a sufficient dose of this new kind of educational opportunity to like counteract against all those incentives that are still there. And I working in a very student centered model, I think those incentives are still a problem so long as universities have the, this this ridiculous process for student entrance. And kids are spending like so much time just trying to get into these so-called like selective universities. All the universities should be good and equal, by the way. But without that change, I still think there's going to be a lot of barriers incentive wise in terms that will mess up the motivational structure that I don't know, a good behavioral economy of schooling could create. What are your thoughts on that as like a professor at a university? Well, I, I think, um, Right now, uh, I don't know about the Canadian universities. Right now, at this moment, American universities are all struggling to, to survive, to seek a new life. So many universities are thinking new possibilities, new ways of doing things. However, I kept talking about individuals, teachers, K-12 teachers, school leaders should also promote that change. You know, like, for example, you talk about students, like you were talking about your students, a passion project or a project that drives them. So how do you let the university know they could select students differently? Yeah, I don't know. You, you, you might know this organization in the U, U.S. that started up four or five years ago called the Mastery Transcript Consortium. It's a great idea. Right? Yeah. So they basically said, tell the universities, you're going to get a different transcript from our high school students. And this will highlight their strength, their experiences, and their competencies. So they've tried that. And the organization is expanding, is gaining a lot of momentum. So that's the kind of changes I think K-12 schools can do. And, you know, universities are willing to change. But universities don't really necessarily change that fast. But then, the, you know, we got thousands of universities. Well, maybe let's say 90% of universities don't change. You got 10%. That's still big enough. Okay. Plus you have other players. You know, you have uh, Google. It wants to play in that space. You know, Amazon, we want to play in that space. Oh, there are a lot of startup companies. It's trying to start with new possibilities. There are many different things. I think uh, our audience, you know, our teachers, our parents, our students should always try to seek innovations and new possibilities, not look at those who don't change. Complaining doesn't help us much. That's why I'm more interested in saying, okay, let's creating something new. Even the teacher decided he's back. He's trying to redo it again. He, he just emailed me. He says, well, just redo it, you know. You, you can't just let it beat you. And somewhere, you know, you found a great place to work with. And somewhere is there's some possibility. So I really want the message to say, Globally speaking, 
there are plenty of new spaces for the innovators to play with. Those people kept asking, so, well, why doesn't they change? Why doesn't that change? That's this delaying the mis- kind of misery. Let's do not delay it. You just, you just have to do it. You, you can find some. If you try, you know, that's it. You know, you cannot find everybody to be the same. That's why we're arguing for this. And plus, I don't want every education system to be exactly like what we're arguing for. I mean, there should be diversity is the key. Yeah, we learn best through diversity and by through idea sharing and comparative analysis and experimentation and reflection on failure. And we can definitely design better systems. I love your optimism about change, which is just beautiful and wonderful to hear. It seems very teacher directed. I wonder what you argue to parents and I'm, I'm in particular. So I taught in Taiwan for five years at like one of these elite schools. It's all about like sending kids to the top American yeah, university. It's called Pacific American School. It was a school that was highly interested in becoming innovative. And I actually had a lot of great opportunities to in introduce Taipei stuff or? there. No, it's in Shinju. Okay, because one of my uh, colleagues, who is Canadian, actually, I don't even know Spencer Fowler. Uh, he said he was interviewed at the Taipei American School. That's mm-hmm. a very old school. Yeah. Anyway, so go ahead. Yeah, TAS is a great school. It is a very traditional school. This school uh, wasn't uh-huh. as highly regarded, but the, the the founder of it was is extremely interested in innovation. So we all learned like design thinking and stuff like that was we were able to create like a whole day block where all the kids would learn design thinking and then they would eventually just design their own projects and just exactly the kind of thing uh, that uh, the teacher in your book was trying to do, which is cool. Parents in the Taiwanese context are interested in that because they're very interested in innovation in particular. This is Taiwan Silicon Valley, the, the social context, and they want their kids to go into top universities and top corporations and whatnot. I think in that context, there'd be a lot of resistance to any more tinkering with the traditional model, especially getting rid of the testing. What would, be, what would you say to say Taiwanese parents about taking the risk and having the courage to put their children into different models? Is it worth it? Well, I actually have made a number of, um, High school students from Taiwan, when they were in high school, they were revolting against the system. Awesome. I love Taiwanese students. They're amazing. To interview me about what's possible, what's different. Well, I just want to say this. I think in the East Asian culture, there is a strong desire to catch the success of today. So I want to be the, in the top university, top company. But if you look at companies, the top of today is not the top of tomorrow. Just look at it in the U.S. You know, since over the last 50 years, the top 500 Fortune companies have changed. They've changed dramatically. Yeah. Right? I mean, so, so if you were like, let's say IBM, for example, in the 1950s, 60s, if you work for IBM, man, that was great. But that, at that time, there was even no Amazon. There was not even no Google. This is why, by the way, you know, when I'm talking big companies, I'm not really promoting them, by the way. I just want to say that's how people go after, you know. You know, I said, I want to go work for this company. The companies shift. We should all, I'm always embracing those who want to start a company, who want to start to become better and become bigger. And, and you know, also the, you know, in terms of um, MBS, you know, they, they started companies. Just how did they become successful, become so innovative? And they want to replicate that. They cannot replicate 
Remember, Google started its own business. Google started its own model. They had food. They had all this entertainment for these people that are different. They say, oh, it's a new thing. But maybe the next new thing will be different. So that's, you know, all these things for parents to think about. Do you want your children to be confident in leading their own innovation and thriving? Or do you want them just simply work for somebody? And there are a lot of people who are happy to work. I'm, I'm not saying that, that, that there's anything wrong, but if you have children whose desire is to start up something and they enjoy doing that, they enjoy the autonomy, the confidence, their relationship, what's wrong with that? I think, you know, I want to encourage the Taiwanese parents or whoever parents, it'll look very hard, work with their children to say, where do you want to go? What can I do to help you? And uh, I have two children. They have different dreams. I know I just, you know, you, you just support them. And remember, we don't live our children's life. It's their own life. I'm sure when you were in Taiwan, you've seen plenty of parental children conflicts. And they have very different arguments, different reasons. And that might actually get worse as children's access to information becomes more and more available. Interesting. Very interesting. I think that's a great argument for parents. I wish I had that a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Very useful. Uh, it is a good one. So, okay, what if what's the relationship then between self-determination and, say, entrepreneurial mindsets or having the skills and capacities to be able to figure out something new? Well, Matt, let me just start by the entrepreneurship argument, which is uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, some Canadians don't like the term entrepreneurs. They think uh, they, uh, there was a teacher, I think, in uh, British Columbia who really, when I started promoting that about 10 years ago, was stalking me to say, oh, you're, you're promoting entrepreneurs. You're t- talking about the big corporations. I said, no, 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 you don't really understand. What I'm talking about is this, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit is not only just to start business. You know, we have business entrepreneurs, but in essence, the entrepreneurial spirit is one that directs you to find solutions to problems. You find problems you want to solve. And today, anything other than machines needs to find problems to solve. So that's why you have business. You have different entrepreneurs. You have social entrepreneurs who does charitable organizations. You have policy entrepreneurs. You have intrapreneurs working within organizations. I think there was one time I heard this one at Apple Computer said, if you want to be managed, you are not employable. If you want to be managed, it's not employable. We hire you to solve problems, but the problems are big and you have to identify smaller problems within. Imagine yourself as a, you know, as a teacher, if you, did, if you did not have entrepreneur spirit, you would be following your principles to tell you exactly what to do. I'd be so bored. You? you have no idea how incredibly bored I would why, be. Why would you even do that, right? Why would you even do that? So, right. so, so the idea of entrepreneurship is that it's you identify problems and you have the desire to identify solutions to work with others. So that's a human spirit. So that's what goes back to, you know, my argument about strength-based education. So you, I want people to be uniquely qualified, has a jagged profile of capabilities. Mm. And then you use your entrepreneur spirit 
to create solutions to problems that matter to people. You've created value for yourself, whether you're in the organization, outside the organization. You know how, like U.S. probably, like we have forty percent of people who work outside the system. You just run, you know, it's a gig economy. It's huge. You know, you, you run your own thing. So that's what it's about: creating value for your own talent, and that value is typically a solution to a problem of others and the world. Beautifully put. I would suggest that if we want to help people do that well, especially more sensitive souls, social emotional learning is crucial. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that there's any amazing models out there. Um, I'm not, I don't know all that much. I'm, I have a very deep interest and I'm a practitioner first and foremost. And I've kind of like fumbled my way to figuring out what works with kids because of our advisory system. I have a lot of time to talk with kids and the kids who are able to understand themselves better through managing their emotions have better access to creativity and critical thinking because they're like their brains aren't flooded with stress and the ability to calm down and manage yourself to be able to get into energized states to calm yourself down and move into more calm states to be able to think critically or to transition to a creative mode these are very very difficult skills are extremely personal and i think a lot of people don't really develop them fairly well and nonetheless get through school and then get into positions of power and then kind of bully their way into getting what they want done. Steve Jobs, wicked example. If you ever read his biography, great book, he's not a kind person. There's a lot of people in power who simply are not kind people. They might be effective. I think we need a world with kind people as well as effective people. And it seems like the, this younger generation is more and more pushing for that. I think there's going to be a big generational conflict between the kids and the adults when it comes to this. I kind of hope there will be one. And I'm on the side of the kids. Just curious about your thoughts about the importance of social emotional learning for self-determination to work. Well, since, you know, we are talking about this topic, social, social and emotional learning, uh, the SEL, we really need to make a, a point. One is that what's been promoted in the society right now, in the U.S. at least, is wrong, the social-emotional learning, because they want to make it a course. They want to make it a standard. They want to make it as accessible. So we have a group of people in Chicago promoting, you got five this, five that, you know. The real issue, I think I was talking to someone at UBC recently, about social-emotional learning, first of all, is the stress. Like you mentioned, schools have managed too much of students' time without giving them the chance for self-determination. Second, students have deprived children of the time and space to control their own learning. Third, for 12 years at least, schools have put children in a space where they find no relevance, no value, and no self-respect, they just fall in something. So the first thing we need to do is to not impose on schools more courses. None of those has worked very well. You know, just teach another SEL course. It doesn't really help. You know, just you need to change the approach. Students need space and time and to rethink themselves. Like you said, you know, we want to be more collaborative. 
But it's not teaching collaborative skills. I don't believe any of the skills that you teach kids to be collaborative. You teach social intelligence. You let them figure out education. A lot of education is experience. A lot of education takes a long, long time to figure out who you are. Learning, like people say, well, you ask kids, let kids do whatever they like. I said, no, you have a lot of requirements. You have, you create a different space. As you know, Depends on the culture you create in, kids develop into different kind of people. But also it's important to understand learning is not entertainment. Learning cannot be fun. A lot of kids not can always. dive into learning, right? Children can dive into deep learning, which goes through a lot of hardships. Like, you know, when I'm, I'm learning, I, whenever I write a book, I learn something. It can take a long time, but I enjoy that. You know, when I'm writing, it's, you know, at that moment, it's like, God, why did I get into this? But then after that while, you feel a sense of accomplishment. So that's what I want students to go through. So social and emotional learning is a whole experience, is to reduce, reduce idea of stress, reduce, you know, like some parents, you know, you were in Asia, that's good. You said, you, said, you got to do that. You got to get this course. You got to go this up. No, you don't. Students, you know, we always endorse students. Oh, students have to learn how to fail. But how do you fail? You know, in the Asian system, actually, and the Canadian system, too, you want the kids to get A's from kindergarten on. How, when do they learn to fail? You know, they need to manage their own time and space. But also important, I think schools have not been evaluated or judged um, by how they help students to grow. Right. If you look at your Canadian system, we talk measure us, we measure literacy, numeracy. How do you measure what really matters to kids? You know, like I, I joke about it with teachers. Teachers, good example. A teacher might have saved lives by talking to a teenager, you know, out of been trying to commit suicide. But that would never be used to judge the teacher. Be the teachers judged by test scores. So we judge teachers, we judge schools based on things that don't really matter. So we need to think about SEL, well, you can use the term, or you can use students, social, emotional well-being, and, but also not only well-being, but also have a desire to serve others. That's what I think we need to think about. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to have a desire to serve others. I, I would suggest that perhaps the competitive elements of schools might be one of the factors that makes kids a little less interested in serving others and also kind of like mandatory service programs that are just about community service and not really learning about the value and importance of service or the problems that underlie uh, whatever it is that you're trying to help. A lot more can be done, but I, I, I'm really just feeling a lot of like positivity and optimism right now talking to you. COVID, COVID sucks. It's changed lots of things. What do you think it what do you think should endure of the things that haven't have changed or have had to change because of COVID? And what do you think we should, we haven't learned? Well, COVID, COVID definitely is a, is a, it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a human tragedy, but it was destined to happen. I think hum, humanity needs some kind of a tragedy like this to, to wake us up. You know, look at it before COVID, uh, this society was not doing great because technology has outpassed education. Education has not changed fast enough to deliver the kind of citizenship, the kind of people we need. So COVID happened. 
But also during COVID and before COVID, look at uh, geopolitics, U.S.-Canada relationships, and uh, Canadian-Chinese relationships. They've become a mess. Look mm-hmm. at Brexit. Look at the protest, immigrants, refugees, all of those things. Look at Donald Trump and all those kind of things happening. But these were all because human beings, I think, have lost. We, we don't know. And that's why education has failed. Because education over the past 30, 40 years, we've been focused on how do we compete with each other, global competitiveness, how do we beat other people in math and in reading, you know, the OECD, PISA, all the stupid things that happened, you know. So I think in COVID, I just wrote an article which will come out soon by uh, UNESCO's uh, uh, prospect, Prospects Journal. It's written about not falling into the trap of the learning loss. I think in the US and Canada, many countries, many parents are falling into this trap of something called the learning loss. How much did that kids learn in math? How much did that learn in reading? No, I said, we need to really think about in the long run, what we need to think about. The first thing is that how to be a human. I think education has not done well you know, you and I have been talking this for a long time. Not only be a human in your local community, but in a, being a human globally. I kept thinking about the millions of children growing up in Africa, sub-Saharan countries, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in China, India, in South America. We will be all together. That's our common fate. So I started a project. It's actually called HIP, HIP. Human Interdependence Project, which is really trying to get kids to sign up globally to be trained to offer services to each other across different globe. They're called hipsters. So that's one of the things. Well, tell me more about that. What what, what was the idea? How's that going? Well, the idea is it's entrepreneurial. You want students to be uh, get into a camp to learn how to be entrepreneurial. First of all, they need to identify a problem worth solving in the area of global competence. You know, one of the things I ask them to do is to say, look locally, how are your economy, your society, or anything you find that's globally interdependent? And then you sign up to say, okay, oh, I, I speak English. I can offer English tutoring to students in Japan. And the Japanese students may be able to offer me this uh, or offer the students into Saudi Arabia, different countries. So, so it's hipster. I, I don't run. I give the idea to a, a company that's in China. The company is called E-Education, Y-E-E Education. They're offering this for free for students cool. to get connected. So, so that's, that's one thing. So students need to be concerned worried about others. And remember this, this is selfish too. I'm not asking students to be unselfish. Is that you are good at something, but my next question is that who cares? So you have to be good, but also you have to translate your goodness, your greatness into something that matters to other people, not something just matters to a system. You know, so that, so that, that's really, I think the first thing COVID hopefully it will help us understand we are human beings. Human beings are interconnected. Human beings are interdependent. Human beings are globally connected. This is, I worry a lot about the poor kids. Let's say in downtown um, Los Angeles, downtown Chicago, how are we going to help them? Because if they do not live a good life, you don't get to live a good life. 
That's how we should think. Well, that happens. And actually, you cannot be the only rich guy in the, in the block. You have to take care of others. You cannot just wave your saber like Donald Trump, go back to Mar-a-Lago. Most humans, you cannot live a life like that. You want high-quality life. You want a safe, peaceful, prosperous cities, you know, and we need to really get back together. We need a long time to rebuild that, and schools can play a big role. I agree. I think like celebrities should play a role in this as well. And billionaires, like if I was a billionaire, I'd have so much fun just trying to solve all the problems. One of the first things I would do is I would create this massive like project based competition for all the kids in the world and give prizes. And then they'd spend tons of time just pursuing their own passions and they'd have an actual incentive. And the kids who don't win, win anyway, because they're self-determined. Some billionaires are doing that. Not all billionaires are doing that. You know, yeah. so we need more billionaires to do that. But I don't, I don't really trust what they can do. I still trust individual students. So you have to come back to the idea: COVID, pre-COVID, post-COVID, during COVID. What we need is self-determined learners. Students have to take responsibility. They cannot trust a system. We should have systems to help them, but we cannot trust that system. Students are in in front of us every day. Students are in our classrooms every day. If you cannot teach them, if you cannot help them, at least give them the time and space to become better, more resilient, more responsible, more creative, and more confident. Totally agree. We need systems that serve students not students to serve systems. These are creatable. They exist. We need to learn about them, reproduce them, borrow from them and create new ideas, constantly experiment, put the kids at the center of everything, really help them believe in themselves, help them build skills necessary, show their talents, impress the stupid universities that are terrible at figuring out who should get in, who shouldn't. And I think we can have a much, much more interesting planet. Well, Gareth, I, I completely agree with you. I think uh, I think you have actually more positivity than I do, and I appreciate that. And you have uh, you have a great vision, Thank and you. I think the key is to say we can inspire whoever we can. We can force changes, you know, wherever it's possible. So I'm never kind of been kicked back by anything. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, we'll try something different. If it doesn't, did not work yesterday, it doesn't mean it won't work tomorrow. But let's have that hope. And we have to embrace some failure. Yeah. It's better to try and fail than to just perpetuate what's been going on. If you don't mind, let me just ask you one thing, because I know our time's running out, and I, yeah. I just remembered it as you said that, which is about how you think change occurs best with respect to like organizational developments well, school. I think changes, you know, changes don't really happen revolutionary. When you, when you had a revolution, you overthrew the system, the government, the coup, but you can't change the culture. The culture is evolutionary change. And remember, the change cannot be done at the system level. <laughs> I think many people are expecting you get a, you know, a dictator comes down to say, oh, we're going to have this big change. We create a new curriculum, a new leadership, new assessment. All of them fail, ultimately. What you need is evolutionary changes. Changes at individual. Students start 
teachers start, everybody has some space they can change. Change small and let it grow. It's the bottom-up approach. And another thing about change is that I don't believe change should have one system, you know, one direction. You know, I like to say change is going one this direction, but you may say another direction, which is fine. And then the changes compete against each other to say, well, if this works, that works. So I want to have a system where everybody is part of change, is part of innovating. And we can always have a, a civil discourse, rational discourse, evidence-based discourse, discuss, debate. That's what makes human society more interesting. Let's get rid of dictators. That's most important. I think a lot of people, even in education, are trying to be dictators. Mm. I think we should uh, really be cautious about that. Very much agreed. Thank you so much, Dr. Zhao. It was a pleasure talking to you. I hope you'll come back. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. It was great. Made my day. Thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Where are you right now, by the way? I'm in Oregon. Okay, cool. Oh, wow. I bet it's beautiful there. You did. Um, yeah. I hope you can uh, enjoy some nature. I'm going to go for a walk myself. All really right. want to thank you and um, I'll be in touch. Great. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Bye. See ya. Be well. Bye. So that was episode 20 of the World Teacher Podcast. A huge thanks to Dr. Yang Zhao. I'm really looking forward to learning more from him. Please check out his work at ZhaoLearning.com. His most recent book, alongside Michael Wehmeyer, his co-author, is Teaching Students to Become Self-Determined Learners. And definitely check out his article in UNESCO MGIEP's The Blue Dot, Issue 13. Much love and respect to Dr. Yang Zhao, for sure. Now on to me. Friends, I need to follow my heart and move on to new things. For the last three years, I've been an overprivileged homeless man traveling the world with a 23-kilogram suitcase and a small backpack working for Think Global School. It's not the healthiest lifestyle for me. And honestly, my soul is crying out for a change. I need to change my life, and I need to direct my energies more seriously to thinking about how to create a much better educational model and a much better world. I love teaching. It's my purpose and passion in life. I love kids, they're brilliant, enormous fun, and they keep me young. And I'm genuinely very good at connecting with and teaching kids. I have the sensitivity to read and respond to them as individuals, figure out who they are, how they feel, what they're great at, and then help them find and see that in themselves for themselves. I'm an excellent designer of learning experiences. Honestly, I have a lot of teaching-related gifts. No matter what happens, no matter what happens in the world, no matter what they do, they can take away my teacher's license, but they can never take away the knowledge and experience I've cultivated over the last 15 years. I was born to teach. But if you stay in one thing for too long, your development becomes stunted at some point. I've been able to find and adapt to challenges that have forced me to grow vastly more than I ever would have if I'd gotten and stayed in a cushy unionized teaching job in Canada. That's the truth. To quote Stephen Hawking, intelligence is adaptation to change. The inverse of that is that without change, intelligence has nothing to adapt to. The mind becomes routinized and creativity dwindles and dies. I have greater crystallized educational intelligence than most because I've put myself into situations that have forced me to adapt and learn and grow over and over again. Those opportunities were precious gifts. I'm grateful for every single one of them, even the hard stuff, even the bullshit. Everything is your teacher once you open yourself to learning from everything always, once you open your heart and mind to life with a capital L. I want to say thank you. 
truly, to all who have opened and closed doors for me, to all who have challenged me, to all who have believed in me, and even to those who didn't. To all who've touched my life so far, I thank you. You've made me much stronger. And a special thanks to everyone at TGS. TGS is a beautiful, beautiful community, and you've all given me and taught me so much. I'll be honestly forever grateful. But I need to keep moving to keep growing. So in a nutshell, that's what I'm doing. I'm leaving TGS at the end of June. My time has come to move on. Moving on to what exactly, I don't yet know. I truly love teaching, but I need to develop other dimensions of myself as well. I need to think, write, speak. I need to dance and let my soul sing. I need to escape the narrowing confines of the systems I've adapted to octopus-like. Systems I might look like I belong in and to, but I'm only passing through long enough to learn enough. You see, I'm not an octopus. I'm a cat spiritually speaking. Like a cat, I'm independent and strong on my own. I'm at my best when I'm following my curiosity spontaneously. And I'll risk taking huge leaps and suffering massive spectacular falls if I see goals worth leaping for. Above all, I have enormous love. And when I extend it, you always know it's true. I need to reconnect with my cat energy. It's been much too long. I need to rest like cats do then go hunting. When the right opportunity springs, I'll pounce. Trust me. If you're listening to this and you're interested in thinking really big and very seriously about how to design and deliver a globally connected network of holistic self-determined learning centers for kids 11 to 25, let me know. I have a massively unfair advantage in terms of understanding how both traditional didactic and progressive student-centered systems work and don't work, and how to integrate them more effectively. I'm happy to help. If you're listening to this and you have some other opportunity, I'm open. I haven't even announced I'm leaving TGS yet, and honestly, people have been reaching out to me on LinkedIn, even like talent scouts, which is pretty intriguing. But honestly, I'm not looking for anything that's going to take up all of my attention and time unless I truly and thoroughly believe in it. I have infinite ideas on my own and a lot of room to grow. Maybe I'll go back to university. Maybe I'll try Y Combinator startup school. I'm honestly super open. I'm looking for that which truly excites my soul. There's so much I want to learn about, so much yet to discover, so many ideas yet to materialize. And fundamentally, I trust the universe. I'm really excited. The next major development too few people see coming isn't the AI revolution. It's the spiritual revolution that's been brewing for the last decade. People are really waking up. And by that, I don't mean woke. Woke people aren't awake. Awakened people don't hide behind fear-based self-righteous identity categories like woke. People worldwide are waking up. They are finally seeing through the BS of all of the dominant systems and technologies and ideologies that are making us and the whole planet angry and sick. Their pain is forcing them to find spiritual healing. I'm one of them. And those who do heal do so only once they're able to overcome their self-delusion. All the protective identity narratives that they've been fed and become attached to that shield them from authentic soul-searching and thus true self-discovery. But once people heal and find themselves, they have much greater power to change. Together we can heal, change, and design our lives in such a way as to reshape the world to work in the interest of us all. Cultural evolution is afoot. Change is coming. But we must be the change to bring the change. Folks, I'm all in. You have no idea how powerful my love is. I will live and die for it. 
Long story short, I'm venturing into open waters without a life jacket. Taking a year off to find myself at 41 is not something I can financially afford to do. Not even close, but not taking time to get back onto the right path in life would be much worse indeed. So, however unclear the road may be, I do have two concrete steps to take at this stage. First, I'm diving back into the podcast. I've got lots of brilliant guests coming up, insanely smart people, authors and profs and the like. But I'm also going to be talking to regular folks, teachers, and even former students about education and life. So please stay tuned. Second thing is I am facing the pain of writing. Finally, this has been 10 years in coming. To begin with... I've created a Substack page, which is sort of like a writing domain like Medium and an email newsletter combined, at least as far as I understand it. Um, for now, it's functionally, if boringly named, the World Teacher Newsletter, that is. I don't like the term newsletter, so that may change, but at least it should be discoverable. You can find it at worldteacher.substack.com. Nothing's there yet. Give me a couple days. And I guess step three at this stage is to get some input from people with different skills and experiences than me and start exploring different opportunities to see what speaks to my spirit. Look, worst case scenario in this, I fail and I have to join the homeless encampments in the park for a while. But if people who face much, much greater challenges in life can manage to do that, I can too. I'm not afraid to face fear. I exist to serve and give love. Wish me luck. Thanks for listening.